If you guys would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, and then we'll also be in 2 Samuel tonight. The words are also printed in your worship guide. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. And from 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 15. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Pray with me. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us tonight, that you would honor the very reading of your word through the power of your spirit, 
even now it would begin breaking into the strongholds of our lives, melting them away. God, we need you. No one here needs to hear from me. We need to hear from you. And so I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. When I was in seminary for one of my preaching classes, uh, Dr. Robert Smith, he selected a bunch of difficult texts from the Bible, and he would put all of these texts in a fishbowl, and he would pass them around, and we would have to draw from them to see what difficult texts we would have to preach from. And I drew out this text from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, I remember when I got it, I quickly opened my Bible. It said 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 through 7. And it was of Uzzah striking the ark and uh, touching it and dying. And I remember actually being relieved because somebody else had something from Leviticus about a white hair and pus and all of that. And I was like, I, I can deal with this. Uh, this. This gives me something to work with. And I, the reason I tell you this is because I want you to know that you're dealing with an expert when it comes to this text, all right? I, I've dissected every Greek word, every Hebrew word, see, already. Uh, I, I've read like a hundred commentaries. I actually, uh, the reason I want you to know that is because I still find this text difficult and somewhat disturbing. Uh, you, you can spin it however you want to spin it. But at the end of the day, you have a man struck down instantly in anger by the Lord. Perhaps we should go back a little bit and just look at the history of the ark and what exactly the ark is in order for us to understand what's going on here. Uh, The ark that they are carrying, the ark that Uzzah touched, the word simply means chest. And it's the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the the Ten Commandments. This is where the Ten Commandments was held. And uh, the Ark was gold. It was about four feet uh, long. It had uh, two cherubim angels on top uh, that reached out and their wings touched in the middle. And that, that lid was called the mercy seat, or the throne of God. This is where God in His Shekinah glory would come and would dwell among His people. It was his throne, if you will. The ark was never to be touched. It was rarely to be approached. Only the high priest, once a year, would go and it would be in the dark and there would be a lot of incense and smoke and he would go behind the veil and he would make many, many sacrifices just one day a year before he could possibly come before this mercy seat. So, The ark of God represented to his people his awesome glory and his presence. And the fact that David wants to move this ark to Jerusalem is a really good thing. Uh, David has just become king. He has established Jerusalem as his capital city. And what he is saying is, I want to bring the ark into the capital. I want to bring the presence of God to be central to my life, to be central to our lives. That's a good thing. Now that David's become king, he realizes more than anything else he needs in life, it is the presence of God. Because being a king is hard. 
David's coming into a situation in which the kingdom is still divided. There's still a lot of people who want uh, one of Saul's descendants to be king. He is, those who were devoted to him have unrealistically high expectations of what he's going to do when he becomes king. You still have the Philistines out there that want to tear you apart. He's, he's coming into a hostile environment, and so he realizes if he's going to survive... If he's going to be the king that God wants him to be, he has to have the presence of God with him. He needs the presence of God more than riches. He needs it more than rules of law. He needs it more than wealth. He has to have the presence of God. Now, you might be thinking, well, doesn't David know that the presence of God is everywhere? And you would be right, because he's written psalms about it. You know, Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? If I were to ascend into heaven, you are there. If I were to make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So David understands, he knows that God is everywhere, but he also understands that God resides in a special way at the ark, that you can experience God's presence, that it's not just a mental knowledge, but it's an encounter with the holy and that's what he needs. That's what he wants. That's what he knows will sustain him. He writes about this in Psalm 27. When he says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. All David wants is to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to sit in His presence. He said, if I have that, if an enemy is surrounding me, it doesn't matter. I don't want to ask to be delivered from them. I just ask if I could just forever sit in your presence. Nothing else matters as long as I have that. If, if David had trusted in wealth, what, what would happen if wealth left him? If he trusted in friends, what would have happened when friends left him? If he trusted in power, what would have happened if he ever was removed from the throne? His life would crumble, but if he trusts in the presence of God, that could sustain him if everything else leaves. One thing I ask. You know, Lauren and I, we've... Um, this past week, I've been thinking a whole lot about Psalm 1611. Um, in thy presence is fullness of joy. Um, it just keeps popping up with different people. Some of you have emailed it to us. Some of you have texted it to us. Lauren was just reading through it in the Psalms. And so it's just been percolating around in our hearts. And it's been needed because I have a tendency to get bogged down in so many little things. I could get worked, about, worked up about all these things. And God's like, you know what matters? Being in my presence. Do, do you really have to worry about things like, you know, how you'll pay for your kid's college education or the, the braces they're going to get? Or do you have to worry about, you know, church things? Do you, do you have to, to worry about, you know, some, some of your friends that you know? You don't have to worry about any of that. You just have to be in my presence. There is joy in my presence. Let that be your rock. And so Lauren and I have been praying as much as we can, Psalm 1611. 
This is on David's heart. This is why he wants to bring the ark back. He, he wants the presence of the Lord to be central to his life. And I think his desire represents our desire. That this is what we want. So this is a good thing. And uh, as we look closer to this passage and we, we see this happening, we see the Ark of the Covenant approaching Jerusalem. It's been gone for 70 years now. And, and now it's finally coming to its resting place. Uh, King David has about 30,000 men, and it's a giant parade. It's a processional. They're coming before uh, Jerusalem, and there's singing, there's dancing, there's cymbals, there's guitars, there's lots of loud music. Uh, it's just a very festive time. All, of, all the people would have come out and watched this procession, and they're cheering, and they're worshiping, and then you have, right there, boom, in the middle of it all, before people really even know what's happening, all of a sudden, Uzzah just falls dead. And, and an ox card, you know, it, it tilts. Uzzah reaches out, and he's dead like that. And you can just picture the, this huge celebration going to silence. As everybody looks at the ark, they look at Uzzah, and they're looking at the ark, and they're looking at Uzzah, and nobody knows what to do. And then David is the first one who spoke. And he spoke out of anger. The same anger that was kindled towards Uzzah, the same word is used to describe David against the Lord. He says, how can the ark ever come to me? How can the presence of God ever come to me? And so you have this amazing turn of events. You go from the heights of celebration to death. And when I first read this, my, my gut reaction is, it's really not fair. I'm kind of on David's side on this. I mean, come on. Uzzah is, uh, I mean, what's he supposed to do? The, the ark is stumbling. You know, he reaches out. He was kind of noble, even heroic, that, that he would do this. God should be thanking him, not punishing him, certainly not with death. He's not a criminal here. And so you get kind of angry. And some of my atheist friends who like to poke holes in Christianity, they'll mock me and say, yeah, that's the kind of God you serve? Joel, I thought you said you served a merciful God. He gets struck dead for touching the mercy seat. I thought your God was slow to anger. Doesn't really look slow to anger here. So you just worship a God that can lash out at people seemingly without cause who are only trying to help. That's why this is in the little fishbowl of preaching difficulties. Verse 8 is the key. It's the crux of the whole text, I should say. Because David's question is our question. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can God's presence, His joyful presence, come to me? Martin Luther in the Reformation, he, he thought a lot about that question um, when he was a monk. He just knew he could never do enough, and he was always just scared of God. And, uh, and the way he used to talk about God 
another monk said, Martin Luther, don't you love God? He said, love him? I hate him. He said, I hate God because he is just. Because he knew a holy God like that could never come to him without punishment. So what is... What is God teaching us here? Luther feels a problem. David feels a problem. We feel the problem. So what is God teaching us here? I want us to look at just a couple of basic things. One, God wants us to understand who he is. Two, he wants us to understand who we are. It's pretty simple. Who is God? Well, God is holy. If you were to boil down one attribute of God, it would be his holiness. Yes, you could say God is powerful, but it's a holy power. You could say he's wise, but it's a holy wisdom. You, you can say that uh, he's strong, but it's, it's a holy strength. He's loving, yes, but it's a holy love. Uh, lo- uh, holiness is the attribute that kind of umbrellas over all the other attributes. God is above all else holy. That's why we say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not love, love, love. Not grace, grace, grace. Not power, 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 but holy, holy, holy. (coughs) But this holy God was not the God that David was trying to bring into Jerusalem. This was not the God that David was bringing in. Now, David was worshiping, but he wasn't worshiping a holy God at this point. He He was worshiping a God that he could control. He was worshiping a God that he had created. What he was really doing was worshiping the ark, a man-made object that could be tangible, held. You can use it as a lucky charm. He had lost the sense of the presence behind this, the presence that the ark represented. He didn't want a God that he could not control. He didn't want a God that demanded absolute allegiance. We know this because David... He disobeyed at least three ways. I'll just give you the highlights of the three ways. One is he's transporting the ark by an ox cart. The ark was, had explicit instructions that it was to be carried by poles so no one would ever touch it. Uh, they had really long poles that would lift up the ark and it was to be carried that way, but David did not regard God's instructions and he just put it on a new ox cart because, hey, it's easier Hey, it's not as much work. Hey, it makes sense. The ark was also always supposed to be covered. We know it was uncovered because he could reach out and touch it. But it was always to be veiled. It was hidden in the most holy place. And also, the ark of God was never, ever to be touched. You touch the ark, you die. Yet Uzzah did it anyway. So when you read this text, the question that you should ask yourself, the question that keeps percolating up in my mind is, exactly what kind of God do I worship when I come and I sing and I lift my hands and I praise? What what does that God look like? Do I want a God that's going to meet my needs? A God who's going to do what I want Him to do? A God that I can have a pretty good handle on? Or is it the holy God who demands total obedience? So God reminds David of who he is. He says, David, I'm not a God that you could control. 
I'm not your genie in a bottle. Don't use me as a lucky charm to bring back into Jerusalem. The second thing that God wants us to learn from this passage is that, first, he's holy. Second, you're not. You're a sinner. Look at verse 6 again. And they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Uzzah here sins by instinct. You know what really disturbs me about this passage is not so much that God strikes Uzzah dead, okay? If you read the Old Testament, God strikes a lot of people dead. It's just one of those hurdles you've got to kind of work through, all right? The problem I have with this text is if I was in Uzzah's shoes, I would have done the exact same thing. It, it, was, it was instinct. The ark falls. It's, it's a sacred object. You reach out. You want to grab hold of it, and yet he's killed. And what God is saying, that's, that's absolutely right. You sin by instinct. It's who you are. It, we have to be taught to love our enemies. We have to be taught to forgive. We have to be taught not to lash out to those who hurt us. Because it's not instinctual. We want to do the opposite. Uzzah's big mistake is that he thought if the ark were to somehow fall and touch the ground, it would be defiled. But if it fell and touched his hand, it would not. Yet nowhere in Scripture does it say the ground is unholy. Nowhere is there anything that says the ark must not set foot on the ground, but it must never touch unrighteous, unholy man. Because when it does, man will come undone. Because a holy God cannot intersect with an unrighteous man like that. God is holy, and we are not. And so David's question remains. With God being holy, with us being sinful, how can God's presence ever come to me? Well, uh, when I preach this at Beeson, Thankfully, I don't have audio of that. But I remember that the thrust I made after that was obedience. Because certainly you do see David obeying after this. Kind of learned his lesson. Good little follower of the Lord. He, he obeys because next time, well, he's carrying that ark on long poles. No cart anymore. Learned his lesson. And he brings it in. And, and obedience, don't get me wrong, valid point. It's important. You need to obey the Lord for him to, for you to experience the Lord in part of your everyday life. But I want us to take a step back and look at even the bigger question. How can God ever come to us? Because you know what? Yes, David might have obeyed here, but David's still full of sin. He's still unrighteous. So how can God's presence ever be central in his life? How can God's holy presence ever be that? To get a hint at this, I want us to go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, and to learn a little bit more about what God is trying to teach about himself and his presence through the ark. We skipped over this when we first started going through the life of David because I knew we, we were going to come back to this at some point. 1 Samuel 5 comes at a 
dark time in Israel's history. Um, it's during the time of the Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, the second half of the book of Judges is why the Bible was almost banned in schools. It is horrible. Uh, the, the atrocities that the Israelites do, is, uh, it's really disgraceful and purely evil. That's, that's where you are when this chapter is hitting here. And we know from Deuteronomy 28, when God laid out the blessings and cursings for his people, he said, if you do not follow me, if you keep going in your sinful ways, I will have to punish you. And the climactic punishment that he said his people would get is, I was, I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to kick you out of the land I've promised. You're no longer going to be in the promised land, the land of Canaan, but you're going to be refugees, poor refugees, scrounging out a living among a foreign people. That's the punishment. If ever you, you keep disobeying me, if you pursue evil, that is what you're going to get. And, and you kind of have the threat of that punishment looms over all this first part of 1 Samuel. As the Philistines are always gathered around and you're thinking any moment God's going to throw the hammer down and he's going to take the land away from the Israelites and he's going to send them into exile. And then you come to this story. In chapter 5 here we, we read how the Philistines captured the ark. Which is astonishing that they did this. They captured the ark and they brought it back to Dagon to the temple of Dagon, kind of like a trophy. They had their own processional. They had their own trophy. And they put them next to Dagon and his temple. Kind of like a, they're setting up a master servant next to the master. And they're saying, Israelites, we're not only more strong than you, but our God is stronger than your God. And then God takes on their God. I love it. They wake up in the morning and Dagon is bowed down. Uh, so they, you know, whoa, that, what happened? Let's, let's put him back up. Next morning they get there, Dagon's, he's bowed down with his head cut off and his hands cut off. And this is what God is teaching in this. What's amazing is what, that when the Israelites were defeated, the Israelites in all their evil, God did not send them out to exile. But God himself went into exile. God allowed himself to be taken out of Israel, to be taken out of the promised land. While all of Israel got to stay where they were, they were not punished. Yet God, the Ark of the Covenant, was humiliated as it went back to the stronghold of the Philistines. And it's there that God took on their gods, and Yahweh won. He took on all principalities, all the rulers there, and he showed himself victorious. And we see when we're looking at this how God works. We see the gospel. We see a sign pointing clearly to Jesus. Because we were not punished in our sin. But Jesus came and he took on our shame. Jesus took on our punishment. Jesus went to go and fight the greatest enemies, sin and death. And he rose victorious. And so when you, when you look at the ark and you ask the question, how can the presence of God ever come to me? First of all, you need to see it in the lens of the gospel. God is working on behalf of his people. Yes, he needs to remind them. He's a holy God. He's a just God. But you know what? The full brunt of my wrath will not fall on you. I take it on myself. 
So the ark points us to the gospel. And I think David is beginning to understand some of this. For one, we understand, or he sees when the ark is put in somebody's home and they don't die, you know what, maybe God is for us. Maybe God does want to bless us. And then David does do two things different this time when he brings the ark in. First, he's wearing an ephod. Look at verse 14 of 2 Samuel again. He's wearing an ephod. It says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. This was a priestly robe. David wasn't wearing this before the first time he brought the ark in. But this time he understands if the presence of God is ever going to come to us, there needs to be a priest. There needs to be intercession on our behalf. And in verse 13, it says he took six steps and then he sacrificed. He said there needs to be intercession. There needs to be sacrifice in order for God to ever be in our midst. And hear me. In Jesus, we have both. We have a much greater David. Just as David was acting as a king and the priest, Jesus was our king and our priest. But he was also the sacrifice. Jesus acted as all of those things in order that he might bring us into the presence of God. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the blood of Jesus now has been sprinkled on the mercy seat. It's been sprinkled on the ark of God. And now we can boldly go into his presence. And it doesn't matter if you're a sinner. It doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is the blood of Jesus that says, yes, you can stand boldly before a holy God. And that brings us to this table, which is what I want us to celebrate tonight.